0: Here's what I hope we'll see and take away from our our passage this morning as we look at it together from Zechariah chapter 3. It's this. Zechariah, as we're going to see, is given both a a disturbing and a glorious promise. He's given a a disturbing vision and a glorious promise, but in the coming of Jesus Christ, what we're celebrating right now this season, that disturbing vision has been replaced with a glorious reality for the people of God. So Zechariah's disturbing vision... And the promise that's made to him, actually, the disturbing vision is removed and the promise is actually fulfilled with the coming of Christ. That's what we'll see this morning. So let me read for us Zechariah. We're actually going to begin uh, with the final verse of chapter 2. And then we'll read Zechariah chapter 3, 1 through 10. This is actually the whole chapter of chapter 3. Hear God's word this morning. Be still. still. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign, Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone... That I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. May we hold fast to it. Amen. Let's pray. God and our Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word we've just read. Would we see on these pages not only what happened before the eyes of the prophet Zechariah some 2,500 years ago, but would we see in Joshua ourselves, our need? But we also, more importantly, see in him a better Joshua who would come. For us, people of God, one who would give himself for, freely and openly. Bless us now as we come together to study your word, and we make our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do three things this morning as we look at this passage. They're fairly straightforward. We want to talk about the setting, this scene that unfolds before us here in chapter 3 of Zechariah. The setting. The problem that is given, and we'll talk about the solution to that problem. And then kind of lastly, to wrap it up, we'll give a little bit of what we might call an epilogue kind of towards the end. So uh, let's talk about these three ideas, the setting, the problem, the solution. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. and. Part of the reason that I included that for us, we actually just sang about this, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. We included this verse here because I think it actually sets the stage for what's happening in chapter 3. And the setting here is really that of a courtroom. I've never actually had to stand in front of a judge for anything more than kind of a a traffic ticket, but some of you have done that before, and you know the experience and the intimidation that comes with having to give an account before a judge, the solemnness, the soberness, the intensity, uh, maybe the fear and the anxiety of being in that place of awe and of wonder, of having to give an account for yourself before a judge, Right. There's a reason that courtroom dramas, whether they're movies or TV shows, get a lot of high ratings because there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of drama that typically comes with that setting of a courtroom. And that's actually what's happening here. The setting is that of a courtroom in verse 13 of chapter 2, the first verse we read, actually is something similar to the setting of the stage of a judge coming in from his chambers, fully garbed and fully robed, ready to take his seat at the height at the top of the bench. Right, Hear this. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. In other words, all rise before the honorable judge who enters. This is very dramatic language and a very dramatic setting that's being given for us here. This is a courtroom setting. And as we think about this courtroom setting and this vision that Zechariah is given... We need to take a moment and ask ourselves, well, who are the the main characters? Who are the players here in this? And there are a few that we need to familiarize ourselves with. There's, of of course, Joshua, who's the first one mentioned here. And Joshua is the high priest. He's what we might call the defendant. He's the accused. Now we need to know a few things about Joshua. This is a real person. You can go back through the annals of history, including the Scriptures, and including outside of the Scriptures, and find that Joshua was the high priest between 515 B.C. and 490 B.C. He's named here in Zechariah, he's named in Haggai the book, he's named in the book of Ezra. And he is essentially standing in the dock, the accused, waiting for this trial to begin. And Zechariah tells us that there is a problem we're going to get to it in just a moment, but the problem is that he's standing in filthy garments and filthy robes, and this is not a good sign. In a sense, Zachariah is kind of setting it up for us in this picture by saying Joshua is guilty already. It's almost as if he's been caught in the act. He's standing there with his dirty garments and filthy robes on, saying he's been caught. He's guilty. He's standing, awaiting trial. This is Joshua, and he's the defendant. And then we see the angel of the Lord, who we might call in this setting kind of the defending attorney. He's the advocate on Joshua's behalf. He actually speaks for God and represents God in this scene. And in many other scenes in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, where we see the angel of the Lord appear. He is a messenger for God. He speaks for God. He represents God. And in this case, he is defending, he's the attorney who really is defending Joshua. And of course we have Satan, who we might call the prosecuting attorney. If you're familiar with that name or that term, Satan, it actually literally means the accuser, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He's standing up accusing Joshua of his crimes, of his guilt, of his filth, of his pollution. He's saying, look at him. It's clear and it's obvious that this man is guilty, and that's what Satan is doing here in this courtroom setting Then we have Zechariah. Zechariah is kind of the bystander, right? He's in the gallery. He's watching all of this unfold. He's a witness to what's been happening here. Now, this scene is very important for us to kind of appreciate and get our mind around what's happening here because it's going to really shed light on the importance of what comes from this. This scene would have been a devastating scene for Zechariah to see. Not just sad, not just discouraging. This would have been devastating for him, a faithful Israelite, to see this unfold. The high priest, the representative, the single most perhaps important person in all of Israel, standing to be accused by Satan before a holy God in filthy, dirty, polluted garments. Imagine for a moment maybe your favorite, some of you younger people, you still have one, superhero. Maybe someone from the Marvel Universe, or Batman, or Spider-Man, or a DC comic guy. And, you know, if you keep up with comics, when I was a kid, I actually would read the actual comic books. We didn't follow necessarily the TV show series, although there were some of those. You may have put down the last comic, and as you ended the last scene of that last comic, things looked pretty good. Things were good. The, The hero had saved the day once more, and things looked well. But as you come to this new scene, you open it up, and on the very first page, there is your hero in chains, bound, gagged, weak, defeated, and right next to him is his arch nemesis, the worst villain of all, with a maniacal grin on his face saying, "Curtains for you, Batman, or whatever it is they would say, you know." Then, you know, this was it. This is the scene, and this is what Zachariah would have felt only multiplied by a thousand times over because this is not a comic, this is real. Remember Joshua is a real person. And even though this is coming to him in a vision, He's being told what the reality of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel was in at that time. Distress. Disturbing. That's how this scene would have been for Zechariah. So that's the setting of the stage that we find ourselves in as we come to this fourth night vision, what we know as the third chapter of Zechariah. Now we need to turn our attention to the actual problem that is before us here that Zechariah describes. Verses 2 and 3 show us that the problem is really simply stated, but it's profoundly damaging. The problem We've already said it. The problem is that Joshua the high priest is covered in these filthy and unclean garments. Now we need to take a moment and talk about three primary ways of why this is a problem. What's the big deal? Why is this a problem? That Joshua the high priest would be clothed in these filthy, unclean garments. The first is this. Because Joshua is unclean, he cannot perform his priestly functions and his priestly duties on behalf of the people of God. Uh, Many commentators, and I think that they're right in saying this, uh, believe that this vision that's given here in chapter 3 to Zechariah is actually a vision of what would be known as the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement in the life of Israel was the most significant and important, important day in the life of that nation of those people It would have been the one day of the year where the high priest, and in this case it's Joshua, would have gone into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place on earth, representing the actual most holy place in the universe where God himself dwelled. That place was to only be entered one time a year. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the priest, in order to prepare for that day, would go through this elaborate ritual of Cleansing himself, washing himself, removing the garments that he had been wearing, the robes that he had been wearing. Washing himself, purifying himself, making a sacrifice for himself first, and then making a number of sacrifices for the people of Israel, and then entering into the Holy of Holies with the blood of these sacrifices to offer on behalf of the people. And so commentators are saying that this vision is actually meant to be understood as taking place on the Day of Atonement. And so if that's the case, you can see how much more significant it would be that that Joshua cannot do his job. That he's defiled, he's polluted, and therefore everyone will now suffer. The high priest would have gone through this ceremony, as we've mentioned, and he would have been doing all of this, preparing himself, readying himself, getting on his proper robes and vestments. He had a special outfit that he wore only on that day. He actually had a golden ephod that he would put on that had 12 stones that represented the 12 stones of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. And he would put that on, and he would literally carry the people of Israel upon his heart into the presence of God. And here's the thing. All of this would have been done in public. In public. So people would have been watching him. People would have been saying, there he goes. There's our champion. There's our representative. There's the one who's going in now on our behalf to defend us, to make atonement for us. He's the one that we need. And if he can't do that, we're lost. He was their advocate. He was their champion. He was the one who would have made atonement for them before God. The only one who could have done that. The high priest, if we can imagine it maybe in this way, in, in terms of his status before the people of God, imagine this. You're familiar probably, I would assume, with the Make-A-Wish Foundation where a young, sick child, perhaps terminally ill, is able to have a wish that they desire granted, right? And I want you to imagine maybe a scenario where a child who's, who's ill and suffering is, is, has a wish, and their wish is that they want to go be with Aaron Rodgers, their favorite quarterback, their favorite team, the Packers, of course. And they want to go be with him as he is preparing to play in the Super Bowl, right? The greatest game and the greatest day and the most important game of the year. Packers have made it to the Super Bowl, and this child wants to go be with Aaron Rodgers, and the wish is granted. So he gets to go into the locker room. This is his hero. He gets to watch him do all of his pre-game routine. He gets to watch him put on his pads and put on his helmet, put on his jersey and get ready to go. And, and before they get ready to actually leave the locker room and go into the tunnel and go out on the game, he recognizes and he sees that, that Aaron Rodgers has on his jersey the initials of this child. And as he's turning to walk to go out onto the field through the tunnel, he turns back to the child and he says, this is for you. Go and do this for you. Again, Multiply that out by 10,000. That is the intensity and the image and the picture of what would have been happening here for the people of Israel and for this one person, the high priest Joshua. But because he's unclean, he cannot perform his priestly functions, and that's the problem. And the problem compounds when we realize that not only can he not perform his functions, but Joshua cannot help himself He can't cleanse himself. He can't make himself pure. Go back and look at our passage briefly and read back through it and then count how many times Joshua speaks. Zero. Count all the times that Joshua takes action to atone for himself or to do something for himself or to change his clothes. None. And that's again meant to reinforce the power of the situation that Joshua cannot help himself. He's utterly and completely Helpless, And what that means, and again, this is the intensity of the problem that both Joshua and Israel, not just him, but all of the people, remain in their sin. They have no advocate. They have no defender. They have no one to intercede for them. No one to go into the Holy of Holies and prepare the place for which God would offer forgiveness and extend mercy to His people. Now if we were to end it here, this would be the most hopeless, the most discouraging, the most frightening story that we could tell, particularly on a Sunday morning in the Christmas season. But there's good news, and that's not the type of God that we serve. A solution is given, and that brings us to our third point. Look at verses 4 through 8. A solution is offered to the condition that Joshua finds himself in, that Zechariah sees him in. And it's worth noting that the solution doesn't come from Joshua himself. It doesn't come from Zechariah. It doesn't come from anyone else. Actually, the solution to the problem that Zechariah sees that Joshua is in the middle of comes from God himself. It's worth noting that God says he's going to do three things. These are action verbs. Action that God will take on behalf of Joshua and his people. And he says, first, I will take your iniquity away and I will clothe you. With pure garments. In other words, I will be the one who will remove your guilt, your shame, your pollution, your defilement. I will make you clean so that you may be able to perform your duty before me. I will take away your iniquity. Having had his iniquity taken away, verses 6 and 7, we then see that Joshua is freed to perform the duties and functions that he is called to do. But that removal of iniquity has to come first. God says this. Secondly, He says, "I will bring," another action verb. "I will bring my servant the branch." Now, this is interesting language. We pause for a moment and ask the question: Who is this branch? Now, this is popular language, particularly among the prophets, essentially pointing to the Messiah. And that branch is a reference to. Either the branch of Jesse, the righteous branch, the rod of Jesse. These are all interchangeable terms for one who would come from the house of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, is the father of David. David, the greatest king of Israel. David, the one that we are told would produce offspring. A king who would reign forever and ever upon the throne of God's kingdom And God says here, this is what I will do. This is part of the solution. I will bring my branch, my king, who will rule eternally and perfectly with justice and righteousness and peace and equity. And then God says this, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I will remove iniquity. Again, there's Imagery there and language there of the Day of Atonement, right? That one singular day when all sin is done away with, when all sin is atoned for and removed. As we said, it's worth reminding ourselves, this solution doesn't come from Joshua. He is utterly helpless to help himself. It has to come from God. That God does this work of cleansing, of changing, of renewal. Do you see yourself in that situation this morning? And do you know that all of us are like Joshua? That we all stand before God just as he did, silent, helpless, unable to change or affect our status in any way, shape, or form. And we need that desperate intervention that God Himself promises to do. And then. Zachariah wakes up. The vision ends. And while the vision ends here, our story doesn't end. The story continues. If we were to travel in a time machine from where Zechariah was, I'll show you here if you can see. It's about this thick, I'm holding up my Bible, and it's about literally 10 pages, but it's 475 years to where our story essentially picks up, and there is now in a suburb outside of Jerusalem another night vision, where actually that same angel of the Lord comes to another faithful son of Israel, and his name is Joseph. Joseph. And the angel of the Lord gives another night vision to Joseph, a man in the midst of his own struggles, of his own uncertainties. His betrothed, his woman he's hoping to spend the rest of his life with, he's just found out is pregnant, and he's not really sure of how that happened because it wasn't him. And so he's confused, he's uncertain, he's distressed. And this same angel of the Lord that came in a night vision almost 500 years before to Zechariah comes now to this man named Joseph and he gives him essentially the same vision. He says, you will see someone named Joshua. And What does that mean? Well, here's what it means for us. You see, in Matthew 1, the vision comes to Joseph and the angel says, Mary is great with child, and she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Joshua. You see, we know him as Jesus. But Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his father, called him Joshua, his Hebrew name, which means God saves his people. And the name that was given to this baby the name of the great high priest who almost 500 years ago stood clothed in filthy rags, unable to save his people. And here, almost 500 years later, another Joshua is introduced to the people of God who will save perfectly his people from their sins. And unlike the Joshua of old, the high priest of old, this Joshua is not covered in filthy garments He's born perfect. Not just as the parents say, perfect babies, yay! He literally is perfect. Spotless. Sinless. That's why He's born of a virgin from the Holy Spirit. And it won't be until 33 years later in His life that He, of His own doing, chooses to take on filthy garments. Ours. That of His own choice at Calvary, He takes on the robes that Joshua the high priest wore. Our sin, our defilement, our pollution. You see, this is the better Joshua who was to come. Zechariah is given this vision, but he doesn't see it come to fruition. He doesn't actually see the branch get to come. His children don't see it. His grandchildren don't see it. Almost 500 years later does the branch come. Does the new Joshua come? Does the better Joshua come? And much better than I could explain it, here's what the author of Hebrews has to say about this new and better Joshua. A new and better high priest from Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared, As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into that holy places. Again, image of the day of atonement, what Joshua the high priest should have been doing. Here's the difference. Not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, that's you and I, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, this is what the better Joshua does for us. He brings us into the presence of God. Taking our filth and defilement upon himself, so that we might be made righteous and perfect in return in the sight of God. I want to end with this. I love verse 10 of chapter 3 because it ends with an invitation. And again, this is something that Zechariah himself was not able to enjoy. But when the new Joshua comes, who has come, Christ the Lord, born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, when his work is accomplished at Calvary, when the death that he dies in our place secures redemption for us, when he is raised back to life and he enters into heaven as the eternal king, then we now become the people who get to extend this kind of invitation, this invitation of abundance. You will invite your neighbor to come under your vine and under your fig tree. That's a picture of deep blessing and abundance. And if ever there were a season to make invitation into abundance, surely it's now, right? At Christmas where we are, have opportunity to invite those around us to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at what He has done for His people. He has sent a new and better Joshua to redeem them, to save them. May we this Advent season contemplate, meditate, give our attention to the great Joshua who has come, who gave everything for us so that we might be made new. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, thank You that in Christ we have a better Joshua one who has made purification for us not by the blood of goats or calves or sheep or rams or pigeons or other animals that would have been offered by offering actually Himself. By giving Himself and by shedding His own blood, He has secured for us eternal redemption. We praise You. We bless You. We celebrate that gift. You are a God who gives graciously, generously, openly to all. we pray as we ponder this Christmas season, the coming of a new and better Joshua into this world, if we meditate on His work, on our behalf, we ask it in Christ's name, Amen.